Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. Alright guys, this has been months in the making, but I am excited to announce that By the Glass has teamed up with Wines of Germany, who has commissioned several episodes of the podcast to educate BTG listeners about the different wines being made in the country right now. For the next several episodes, I'll be interviewing winemakers and wine importers with the goal of gaining a more holistic understanding of German wine. So for the first episode in my collaboration with Wines of Germany, I'm going to do a quick primer on German wine. Consider it German Wine 101. And we're going to start with the history of how winemaking not only arrived, but thrived along the Rhine. Then we'll figure out how to read a German wine label, defining all the important terms and styles. By the end of the episode, we'll have covered Germany's major grapes and regions. There's a whole lot more than just Riesling to discuss, so I've teamed up with one of my best pre-pandemic drinking buddies, Lance Zierlein, who is one of Houston's most knowledgeable sports commentators, especially when it comes to the NFL. We've structured this conversation in such a way that hopefully Lance learns the basics of German wine, and maybe along the way, he even teaches me the basics of uh, professional football. Who's to say? But we've got a lot of ground to cover, so we'll just jump right in. All right. Cool. Lance, how you doing, man? Good, good. I'm excited. Yeah? Ready to go? Ready to go. Awesome, fun. Well, I'm I'm stoked for this conversation, man. How you been? I've been good. I've been good. It's it's tough times, but at the same time, um, the ability to have my... For me, I'm really excited because I get to learn about one of my favorite things, which is wines. I don't know as much about German wines, but it's always fun to have the connection. You know, I think that's yeah. what... For me, as someone who um, I stay very busy, I work two different jobs, I have five kids, it's, I live a busy life, and so when I have the opportunity to go out, it for me, it's about connection, but I also like to experience things I've never experienced. So that's why when we go to different cities to travel, it's important for me and my wife to, to find drinks and find wines and find restaurants and, and, and see sites that we mm-hmm. wouldn't normally because what is life but um, you know experiencing new things and so totally that's very important and this is uh, one of those opportunities for me so I'm looking forward to it well for people that don't know you you are prolific within the professional and collegiate kind of football world mm-hmm. right I mean for part of the year you work for the NFL analyzing draft selections you know helping with the draft and then you also do a lot of sports radio right. and one of the most knowledgeable people when it comes to football that I know, and that, I, I mean, I know nothing about football, so, <laughs> I mean, maybe that's not saying much, but I would think that, like, for you, you are traveling a lot for the draft or, you know, scouting out teams, looking at college players as they go into the pros. I mean, kind of like, what's your relation to wine from sports? Well, so the way I look at it is... In, in really, in my sports radio world, which I've done it for 23 years in yeah. Houston since I was very young, it's funny. When I first started, I'm a young guy. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I don't know anything about good restaurants, about good wine. I'd worked in, I'd worked in restaurants here locally, but the food scene wasn't what it is now here in Houston. Mm-hmm. And of course, my wine, um, you know, my wine knowledge was just the cursory wine knowledge I needed for the restaurant at that particular time. But as I got older and more mature, 
my palate matured. Um, it, it became clear to me as I really experienced more wines, more types of food, more types of cuisine, that there's a lot of similarities actually, because in my world, I've got to talk about a variety of sports, a variety of different types of players. The same thing for my NFL draft work. There's a lot of, you know, an offensive lineman when I watch him is way different than a running back and he's way different than a safety and he's way different than a quarterback and he's way different than a linebacker. And so in that way, I understand, I have a unique understanding that even though they're all inside the same housing of sports mm -hmm. or football or whatever the case may be, there's so many different varietals yeah. of, of players or yeah. varietals, varietals of sports. And and once you have that understanding, it's it really is a parallel where you're always learning. I'm always in a process of learning more and more in my own craft, even after 20 plus years. And so it's the same thing with wines. I mean, there's a ton of different varietals. There's a ton of different um, traits. There's a ton of different um, experiences to be had from so many different regions, so many different countries. And so this is going to be something relatively new. You know, I'm also really excited because my last name, Zierlein, is, is a German name. Um, I've traced my family roots. My dad is really into it, and I got on Ancestry, and I... Did you do 23andMe? I didn't do that, and, no. I, and I want to, and I'm going to. But I went on Ancestry and traced back. I, I have Germany on both sides of the family, my mother's side and my father's side. And of course, there's French, and of course, there's also English, and there's, but um, the German side is the predominant side, and yet I don't know nearly as much as I want to about the culture, yeah. um, including the food culture and wine culture. Have you been to the motherland? I have not, and we were going to go to Berlin. My wife was going to run the uh, the marathon. Shout out this Nicole, going to run the marathon. Shout out to the wife who was going to run the Berlin marathon, and of course, COVID got in the way of that. And my dad was so excited. He said, "Listen." I've got over a million points because he lived in a hotel for four years when he coached football for the mm -hmm. Arizona Cardinals. And he said, I'll give you as many as you need if you go over to, to Germany and, and, and go experience it, which I was totally down with anyway. Yeah. And so he really, it's really important for him that I get to connect to that part of uh, the history of my family. I mean, it dates back, mm -hmm. but it dates back to my great-great-grandfather. I mean, he moved over from Germany, so not that far removed. Yeah. So, you know, something that I think maybe a lot of people know, even someone like me that doesn't follow sports super intensely, uh, it seems like in the NBA, at least, mm -hmm. there's this love for wine. You read these articles about, like, in the bubble, the wine dinners that are had or the bottle shares that are going on. Is there that same appreciation for wine in the NFL that there is in the NBA? Are there a couple of, like, wine hounds that are, like, out there seeking out bottles of Quintarelli or whatever? You know, I think it really, it really does naturally progress with age, like for, for a lot of us. Mm -hmm. As we get older, as we get... Uh, more diverse, our tastes become more mature. Mm -hmm. And that is true. I have a friend of mine who has become friends with LeBron James's business manager. Mm -hmm. And he said that when he was in Los Angeles, one of the greatest things that ever happened to him is, and he knew he was really in yeah. with the LeBron James business side, was when Maverick Carter asked him to come back to his to his place and experience some wine with him in his, in his you know, his own... Um, uh, wine cellar and so he went back and he said man he had some great wines like he takes it very very seriously mm -hmm. and this is a guy in his uh, early 30s I think 33 oh, wow. years old and he's been collecting now for a while so on the basketball side 
And that gets back to your basketball side. In football, I think it's the same thing. I think mm -hmm. when you get some players who really and, and many times it does go hand in hand with food. If yeah. you enjoy one, you typically enjoy the other. Totally. Well, there's no more food-friendly wine out there than the wines of Germany. Um, I know how much you love sushi. I know how much you enjoy, you know, the cuisine at Real Restaurant, a place here in town. Restaurants that really specialize in crudo and some of the more like rich umami, rich flavors. And really German wine, Riesling and other grapes are kind of like the perfect pairing for that. So I figured what we do today, we would taste through a wide array of different German wine and kind of just go through the basics, you know. We'd start with kind of like a quick introduction to the history of German wine. And then from there, we would kind of talk about how to read a German wine label because sometimes they can be really hard. There's a lot of information here in a really hard to pronounce language. And, you know, I think going over kind of how to read that label would be great. And along the way, we'll taste some wine. So I figured a great starting off point would be with some bubbles. Good. What do you think? It's always great to start with bubbles. Yeah, so German sparkling wine is called Sekt. It's S-E-K-T. And Sekt is the German word that's used for sparkling wine. And it can be made like Prosecco or like Champagne. The one that we're going to have is from a producer called uh, Dr. Lucen. This is the Lucen Brothers Dr. L Sparkling Riesling. This one, this particular bottling is made like Prosecco. So it's a little more modestly priced and a little more approachable in flavor than maybe the ones that are made like Champagne. This is a great like weekday wine. Something you could just crack open and drink. So I'm going to... Go ahead and bust this thing open. So tell me what, like, um, typically, if you had to say a typical use, is this going to be just as I would imagine it, that this is going to be something, um, it could be celebratory, it could be at the end of a weekend, it could be to start the, the evening off, to start the dinner off. Um, yeah, totally. I mean, bubbles... I always tell people, like, why save bubbles for celebrations? Like, bubbles, I think, are one of the most, like, tasty and food-friendly things out there. I mean, it's texture and acid. And Riesling itself is a very high acid variety. <laughs> so it lends itself to sparkling production really well. And as a prolific sparkling wine drinker yourself, I know how much you enjoy Proseccos and Pet Nats and Champagnes. I think that like German sparkling wine is something that's going to grow as a category a lot as we progress. So pour you a little bit of that. So Sekt, again, is uh, the name for German sparkling wine. This one is a little off dry. Um, it's a great just like patio pounder, you know, just something really fresh and bright. So I figured it would be a great starting off point for us. That's nice. Yeah, kind of zesty. You get a little bit of that like candied lemon peel. Like it's very zesty and fresh. So one of the things, I mean... The reason I love bubbles, I love the effervescence, I love the freshness. Um, I like, for me personally, I like, I like a sparkling a little more on the on the drier side, mm -hmm. obviously. But there are times where I notice that the ability to balance, you know, the the there is. I think a lot of people assume they like either dry or something a little sweeter, and then once you experience. And they, and they tend to get in that lane and stay in that lane without experiencing the other side. Mm -hmm. But when it's done well, it's it's always a shock to me to realize, wait a minute, I, I and and I have an experience with Riesling that we'll talk about later. But it's amazing once you experience something that's that's really done well, 
you start to find out my palate's been missing. I, I, yeah. I have limited myself unintentionally yeah. or intentionally, and it's um, at my. You know, I'm glad to find it now. But that's something that I found with uh, bubbles is when you do have a little sweetness when it's done well, that can also be something that's really really fun to drink as well. You know, the the analogy I always like to use with that is like think about lemonade as a beverage, right? Right. People don't want like a super syrupy sweet lemonade, or maybe they do on occasion, but. A really well-made lemonade, probably going to have a little bit of sugar to it. Mm -hmm. But there's also going to be a whole lot of acid to balance that out. You know, in order to make lemonade, you do need sugar. Like, no doubt about it. You know, it's a question of creating that sense of balance where you get a sip and maybe the first thing you get is sweet and then the lasting impression is that acidity. So let me ask you in a general sense, and it's not necessarily with the bubbles, but the balance, how much of the balance is the grape versus the, the winemaker? You know, in Germany specifically, right. um, they pride themselves on creating very precise wines. You'll visit a German winery and you like walk up and they'll Similar have to like... the soccer team, by the way, the World Cup soccer team. Yeah. It's a precision passing attack. <laughs> and that's right on, that's right on brand yeah. with uh, what I think of in the sports world with yeah. German basketball players, German soccer team. Precision is what it's known for. Like, for them, it's all about the purity of the fruit. Like, how can we best express this particular, like, vineyard? And within a vineyard, there might be multiple soil types. Mm. You know, you might have blue slate and red slate. You might have, like, another site that has, like, more sandy soils. And you will visit this winery, and they'll say, this is our single vineyard bottling, and here's the red slate bottling. This is the blue slate bottling. Here's our other bottling from this other soil type. And they'll bottle the wines based on soil type. They'll have, like, a bottling for every single vineyard that they're in. How unique is that? It's pretty unique. Like, you'll visit a German winery, and they'll have, like, 20 different cuvées. You know, think about some of the wineries that we know in, like, California, you know, and it's like, they make you know, they're like house red. They make their prestige cuvee or whatever. You know, they make their higher end wine. And then you go to Bordeaux, right? And maybe they have a second label and then they have their main label. You know, but in Germany, it's not uncommon for one winery to have 20 different wines that they make, you know, based on each of those individual parcels, you know? And then also within that, they might be bottling at different levels of ripeness. You know, we'll talk about kind of that ripeness designation that's used, but it's not uncommon for one producer of Riesling or one producer in Germany to have a whole lot of different skews based on the level of ripeness of the grapes or the geographic designation of that wine. So what we're drinking now, do you have an idea of the, the level of ripeness? Yeah, so this one, you know, probably clocks in close to about 20 grams of residual sugar. So definitely more than like a brute would be. But, you know, Lucen Brothers, they're a prolific producer. They have the Dr. Lucent is their main line of wines that they make, and they have a whole lot of different bottlings within that. I'd say that this winery has over 20 different bottlings, which is a lot, a lot for sure. Um, but I think that speaks to kind of where we're going in Germany with this idea of making a whole lot of different wines. I think people pigeonhole the country as just making Riesling, right. you know, and what we're going to see with these wines that we're tasting today, there's a whole lot of other things that are made there. Other varieties, white varieties, red varieties. I mean, they are the third most productive region in the world for Pinot Noir production. Yeah. They make more Pinot there than most of the world. So it's you know? France, U.S., and then Germany. And then Germany. So right. super cool to see them kind of really come into their own 
with but i think what we want to do is we want to start all the way back to we don't want to finish that bottle oh no no we're gonna finish the bottle oh for sure. okay yeah no, no no i think i think what we want to <laughs> do is really nice yeah it's just fresh easy to drink especially here in houston when it's like 102 degrees it's outside literally 100 today so yes that's that really was what so I i'm gonna pour you a little bit more because we're about to have it. a we're gonna have a history lesson here for a sec and i want to make sure you have something to drink while we do that i do now there we go. So we're going to start talking about like the history of German wine. And really the start of it, we got to go back to about 50 BC when the Romans invaded Germania. And when that happened, they brought with them Vitis vinifera, the, the grape vines that were you know prominent in Rome. And as they conquered other regions, they brought vines with them. You know, because wherever they went, they wanted to have wine that they could drink. So they plant these varieties and in the late 3rd century um, AD, they have this decree that says that they're going to spread vines even further within Germany. Eventually, Rome collapses, and when that happened, the Germanic tribes kind of maintained vineyards and winemaking traditions. That continued, and around in the year 800, you know Charlemagne of the Holy Roman Empire? Mm -hmm. So he decides that one of the best places to plant vines is in this part of Germany, this area that's now known as the Rheingau. Um, and that area becomes prolific for wine production. Now, the Holy Roman Empire combined parts of what we now consider Germany with what we now consider parts of France. So you had this one region, this one empire that contained Alsace as well as Burgundy. And so you had monks, you had people within different religious orders traveling from Burgundy into what is now Germany. And with them, they brought their winemaking techniques. So really, if we want to talk about the Middle Ages, it's impossible to separate French monastic wine tradition from German monastic wine tradition. You know, the monks brought with them Pinot Noir and really developed winemaking techniques to Germany. So you look at like the biggest wine estates of the time, the biggest vineyard holding in all of Europe at the time was a German monastery. Um, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, really, you talk about the Middle Ages and the reason that wine production continued was because of monks. We have them to thank for all that. So, you know, I, I found it interesting in doing some research myself that we're talking about a couple millennia, obviously, that you're going back in terms yeah. of German winemaking and production. And I would assume that most people have no idea. That has to be something because I don't. I just don't feel like the general public associates that that deep and rich a history going all the way back. And I was in reading some of the history that really um, impressed me. And then you added layers of context to it as well. Um, the process of when you have something that is going to be this traditional, I would imagine the older it's going to be. When you have a more traditional, when I say traditional, certainly a long-standing you know, we're talking BC, yeah. that you're doing something. There's a, there's techniques and, um, is it harder or the traditional versus the experimental, I, I guess is my yeah. question from, from a German standpoint, is it known to be traditional? Like how experimental, how, how frequently will have the winemakers over time taken more chances and really, um, altered the way that they've made wines? Totally. So, you know, I think especially during the Middle Ages, like if we're talking back then, it was all about perfecting 
like the technique you know the monks prided themselves on like designating individual parcels like recognizing which vines were most productive what soil types worked best with which varieties i mean they literally spent their days praying and working in the vineyards like that's what they did you know if we look to germany now I think that it is one of the most like traditional places for wine. Mm -hmm. You know, they've been making wine. A lot of these estates, you know, what we're going to taste, we're going to have a wine that's 11th generation winemaker. We're going to have wines that are made by like families that have been making wine for centuries, you know, and getting back to that idea of like purity of fruit, whatever they can do to make that wine taste as good as those grapes tasted in the vineyard, right? They're getting this really beautiful fruit from that vineyard that's beautifully terraced. The last thing they want to do is mess it up in the cellar when they're working with the varieties, you know? So they're not going to do some wacky, crazy science experiment to try and, like, make some new style of wine. You know, they're going to stick to what they know. However, Germany as a region has changed so much because of global warming you know, so there is a level of experimentation that's going on right now. And this younger generation, this generation of people that are in their like 20s and 30s and even 40s now, they're people that probably, you know, trained in other countries. They maybe did some winemaking studies in France or in the United States or in other parts of the world. And they saw what's going on. They saw what was going on in these other places. And they want to bring that to Germany. So just in the past 20 years, we've seen an increase in the amount of red wine being made in the country. We've seen an increase in the amount of sparkling wine made. Now, is that the result of global warming? Part of it's that, you know, but part of it is this more global perspective that Germany's taking when it comes to winemaking. The, it's interesting you use the word precision. Um, and as I said, that's kind of on brand for Germany, the yeah. Germany that I know through sports. <laughs> yeah. But precision and traditional and on the traditional front is more intellectual and you mm-hmm. have the experimental would be on more on the emotional. And there's not a right or wrong way, mm-hmm. but it, it seems as though you're telling me that the German way, while there are going to be change, there's always change. Yeah. But one of the appeals of the German winemaking is is the technique and is the, the tradition and is the precision because they want to have it, they want to, to maintain that history of how they've done things with with obvious growth that's going to happen over time, clearly. Yeah. I mean, you look at some of these vineyards that are in Germany, they've been they've been established as an estate for hundreds of years. And I think there's a lot of respect for what came before. I think that's a really important thing in Germany. Tell me about the Mosul. I hate to jump ahead and take over your podcast here, but I'm, <laughs> I'm really interested in Mosul River Valley and yeah. what like what that means to German winemaking because I know it's so important. So that is like, yeah, for sure. Mosul is kind of like the home of Riesling for most people. When they think of when they think of Germany, they think of Riesling. And when most people think of Riesling, they think of Mosul. So during the Middle Ages, right, the monks were working, they were getting their stuff done. Eventually, I would say in like the 1800s, that's when German wine kind of exploded. That was kind of the golden age for Germany. And during this period, it's another region called the Rheingau that becomes super popular. Rheingau, as the name suggests, is located along the Rhine River. And the Riesling made there tends to be a bit more bold and full-bodied than what you find in Mosul. And in the 1800s, these Rheingau wines were the ones that were getting all of the attention, especially because Queen Victoria and her husband, Prince Albert, they'd visited the Rheingau, specifically this village of Hockheim. 
So you have all these countries in Europe that are importing German wine, and no one's importing more than England. Their queen had just visited, they're loving it, and they start calling German wine Hock. And that name comes from that village that we were talking about, Hockheim, that the queen had gone to. So yeah, there were kind of like two big regions at the time. There was Rheingau that we were just talking about, but then there's also Mosul, which you brought up. You know, named after the Mosul River, the Moselle, as it's referred to in France. And if you see photos of that, those vineyards, it's these sweeping vineyards that are incredibly steep. It's these vertiginous slopes that are literally like, you know, so steep that you're on all fours trying to climb up there. Um, I've been there myself, and literally I could not climb up the vineyard. It was that steep. So how difficult is it to cultivate that? It's insanely difficult. I mean, they've developed these really unique systems, like pulley systems, to like transport grapes up and down. You know, the the vines themselves are oftentimes like terraced to some degree. Um, it's a really special place, and I think that that kind of beauty in the vineyard is what made those wines appeal to people all around the world. You know, here in our own city, you know, you know the Shamrock Hotel? Yes. It was the largest hotel in the United States in the 1940s. And the most expensive wine on the wine list was a bottle of German Riesling, which is crazy to think. You know, it is. It was more expensive than the Burgundy or the Bordeaux that was on the menu. The most expensive wine at the Shamrock Hotel, like you go to those historical menus, was Riesling from Germany. So Mosul had a huge cachet, the Rheingau, that region that, you know, the Holy Roman Empire that Charlemagne was so into. He loved that. So Rheingau and Mosul, those were the two regions that were just like hands down everyone's favorite. And those were the regions that were exporting their wine all over. And that was in part because of that, you know, boom, that golden age that we talked about. And that was the result of Napoleon. He had invaded the Holy Roman Empire, taken over the land, and basically privatized everything. He had passed these Napoleonic codes that basically took land away from the church. So all the monks that had put in all that time working in those vineyards and making them the best possible sites for grape production, now that all went to private individuals, right? And now these private individuals they want to make money off that land. They want to make great wine that they can then sell all over to England, to the United States, everywhere. And that's when you have those exports going off. So the 1800s, that's when Mosul, Rheingau, other parts of Germany, that's when they're blowing up. But they didn't change the way the wine was made. No, they didn't change the way the wine was made per se. It was just the land was transferred from the church, from these monasteries to private individuals that then treated it like a full-on business that would sell it from place to place. Which was the exportation of the Riesling. I mean, yep. it was, it's, it's probably why it has become what it is today. No, for sure. So, to follow up on Riesling, it's interesting. The first time I had Riesling was when I didn't have an appreciation of wine in the first place. And I had mm -hmm. a very sweet Riesling. And after that, I just said, I'm out on Riesling. This is... Yeah. All Riesling tastes like this. All Riesling is ultra sweet. And I mean, I had what would, I guess what would be what we would call almost the well version of, of <laughs> the Riesling. You know, we, the, the most standard, a low cost point Riesling. Yeah. And it really, and, and I was upset with myself probably about 12 years, maybe even 13 years later. Mm -hmm. someone said, oh, I've, we've got a great Riesling. I thought, oh, I just don't like sweet wine. No, it's actually not too sweet at all. I think you'll really like this. Mm -hmm. And I had to, to, to let down my own bias. And, yeah. and it, was, it was delicious. And 
it is interesting since that time um, that I've experienced the different levels of Riesling. And I'm mm -hmm. sure I'm not alone. I'm sure there's oh, a lot of people. I think you, unfortunately, are in the majority. And majority, that's, what, right. that's what all of us as sommeliers, like, we struggle with that all the time. I, because I've noticed that with Psalms. Anytime they bring up a Riesling and I've ever asked, how sweet is it? No, no, no. We've, we've, you don't. Yeah. I feel like they can read, oh, no, don't worry. I know you've had a terrible experience when you were <laughs> 22 years old yeah. with someone who didn't know wine yeah. and gave you a Riesling that really shouldn't have been in front of you. I'm sure it's the same thing, you know, that people that work in like, that work for mezcal or tequila companies that make really high quality mezcals or tequilas, you know, they're dealing with people that are like, oh, I can't drink tequila. I had a bad experience with tequila in college. And they're like, no, 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 this is like a really high quality artisanal product, you know, right. no worm in the bottle or right, anything, right. you know. So, so, you know, Germany's kind of like golden age was during that period of the 1800s. Then obviously there was global conflict during the world wars, wine production, you know, fell apart. And it was after that, it was after World War II that production really picked up again and Germany continued to sell wine, grows in popularity in the 60s and 70s. And eventually Germany passes, you know, in 1971, a major law that basically you know, creates a level of uniformity in the way wine is made. It's kind of like this big moment when they decide how they want to label their wine. That law is later updated in 1982, and that provides the basis for modern German winemaking. What was the uniformity? So, you know, that's the thing is that you had all these different regions that, you know, some were very tethered to, you know, French winemaking tradition because these regions had gone back and forth between France and Germany. You had regions in the southernmost part of Germany that were very similar to Switzerland or close to, you know, Italy. You Why know? was that? Uh, just where Germany is. If we think about Germany geographically, it's sandwiched between all these different places. And most of what we consider Germany now was the Holy Roman Empire, which was just a, you know, grouping of all of these different kind of like kingdoms and tribes. You know, there wasn't a level of uniformity to everything. I mean, you and I were talking about you know, where your family's from in Germany, right? And you had said they were from more the Bavaria side of things, right? right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think that's true. Like, you think about German, Germanic culture as a whole, and there's a lot of differences there. Um, and every region had their own kind of special grapes. You know, Riesling, obviously, is the unifying grape, especially considering how popular it is internationally. But there are all these other really cool varieties, you know, in the case of, like, Pinot Noir and Pinot Blanc and Pinot Gris, those are varieties that were brought in from France. But then you have grapes like Trollinger, you know, which, you know, in Italy is called Schiava, you know. Then you have other varieties from Austria, you know, like Lemberger, which is called Blaufrankisch. You know, you have these varieties from all over. It's truly an international country, um, especially when it comes to winemaking. So we've had a little bit of sparkling wine. I think we should jump into uh, some still Riesling. We've had sparkling Riesling. Now let's do a... A still Riesling. You ready? I'm ready. All right, here we go. So this is a producer called Louis Gutram. And Louis Gutram, I was telling you earlier, 11th generation winemaker. So he's making wine in a region called the Rheinhessen. Um, it's this really unique area, kind of a little f further south, further south than Mosul or Rheingau. And what they're doing there is they're making wine of all different styles, all different grapes. It's... It's a massive region. 
about a quarter of all vineyards planted in Germany are in this region. So you got a lot of different things going on in Rheinhessen. But this is like one of one of the better producers you see there. Um, really great stuff. So do you open up a Riesling? It's probably a dumb question, but you know, in terms of swirling around and, and opening, we're used to it with big bold reds and things. Does can it be? Is is there any type of of opening decanting that's ever done with a Riesling? Yeah, I think so. So you know, you've probably heard of like people adding a little bit of sulfur to wine, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. So sulfur, right, is a preservative. It's a good thing. You know, some people that drink more natural wine might disagree, but you know. <laughs> Sulfur is used as a preservative, you know, and a lot of German winemakers, you know, you'll notice a lot of things are under screw cap, you know, um, but a lot of producers will dose with a little bit of sulfur at bottling. And that's where you get like a little bit of that like smoky element to some of these wines. So sometimes opening up the bottle will allow a little bit of that sulfur to blow off. It's really interesting. It's just, just on the nose. This is, there's something different than I'm that I'm getting on the nose. Have what you, is that? Yeah. Have you ever heard anyone use the word petrol to describe Riesling? Yes, that's exactly what I'm yeah. getting. I, I wouldn't have thought that, but that's exactly what it is. Yeah, so there's this like chemical compound that exists within the grape variety um, that gives it that just like really distinct savory note. You know, some people say petrol. Some people say it's almost like a um, cool toy. Not in a bad way. No, but it's a, it's a very unique... That's why I was having a hard time placing it. Mm -hmm. And as I watched, I remember watching the movie, the the, the Psalm movie, where mm -hmm. where these guys were all trying to become. I'm sure yeah, you've yeah. seen it. They were they were going for. I think they're masters, but maybe it was yeah, just, they're masters. They were going for masters, and listening to them describe these wines, some yeah. of the things they came up with seemed so absurd. Fresh and, rubber hose. Yes, yeah. and yet here I am, and I'm like, yeah. or tennis ball. Hmm, this is tennis ball was one of the more yeah. interesting ones. But I couldn't place that, and as soon as you said the petrol is, is mm -hmm. that's exactly what it is. This is really nice. So this is completely unlike anything I had when I was younger. Mm -hmm. But I really love the fact that it's not. This is what would you pair this with if you were going to pair it? If someone came to you and said, "Chris, I love this. What would I pair this with if I'm going to if I want to have my my dinner experience revolve around this particular Riesling. Yeah. Because a lot of people love to choose wine with food. Yeah. But you know, I know people who love, who say, this is the wine I love. Yeah. They'll go choose the wine first and then they'll shape their dinner around the wine. So, so often our immediate gut reaction is to pair things flavor for flavor, right? Mm -hmm. You know, this wine, it's so citrusy. There's such like a bright, high-toned character to the fruit that you want to go with something like a ceviche or, you know... It's too much. But then you're, you're, you're acid one with acid. one-on-one. Right? Yeah, the acid on acid. But, but sometimes I want to go with something that kind of like cuts right through that, you know? So I'm thinking of something like Otoro, you know, something a little fattier. I would even have this with steak, honestly. Like mm -hmm. like prime rib, something where you have like maybe some rosemary or fennel. You know, you could have this with pork. I think like porchetta would be great with it. You know, a more like marbled cut of beef or like a fattier protein like pork. I think so would work want, so well with yeah, this. Yeah, so if you want to get, you've got all the acidity you could yeah. want. I think the fat is the perfect balance with Yeah, because you think it. about, you have a bite of like prime rib and you have a little <clears throat> bit of that fat cap in there mm -hmm. and your mouth is like coated. You've got that like kind of like film on in your palate, right? This cuts right this through. This would cut right through it. It's that perfect palate cleanser. You know, this is a such a savory wine. There's such that umami flavor that I think you can go with the, like cheesier dishes, really creamier items. 
Um, and then also just like earthier elements, like things with mushrooms or like white beans, you know, something something in that character. So from a German wine standpoint, I know this is an incredibly general question, but would you say there are there are wines that you would recommend for, you called it a patio pounder, but that's what I'm getting at, that you would say, this is what we open up. And I'm not saying an after-dinner drink, but this is going to be just specifically to share with friends. And and these varietals and these bottles are what we're going to be pairing with food. Would you say that's – will everything typically pair with a food if you get right around to it? Or are there certain types of wines that you say, no, this really, because of the complexity or because of the certain – um, build and body of the wine is really more of a pairing wine versus the drinking wine, well, the, a social know, wine. No, totally, for sure. I think when I think of social wines, I think of things that are maybe a little more sessionable, that are lower in alcohol, because it's hard to throw back three or four bottles of a Napa Valley Red that's clocking in at 15% alcohol. I mean, you could do it, but social hour is going to be cut short a little sooner, you know? <laughs> right. uh, but for me, like, I want something that's going to, like, be the perfect aperitif in the sense that like it's gonna leave me wanting more and like this wine i'm still salivating but i haven't had a sip of this riesling for at least like 30 seconds you know i want sushi now like yeah why i don't you understand want... why did we not order sushi to be delivered in the middle of this podcast that would have been the mood. i don't understand how i didn't have the foresight because now that i taste this riesling this is perfect when you mention the fatty fish and and the belly of the that, that fat right now is exactly mm-hmm. what I crave to pair with this, a hundred percent. Or even like roasted fish. You know that at Katarabata they have that hum, that uh, fish collar. I think it's hamachi collar. Right. And it's like roasted, and you get like those little nooks and crannies of meat. Mm-hmm. So good. Like for me, that's what I love. Even salmon, like a like a nice marbled piece of salmon with oh, this yeah. would be great. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, what I love about Riesling is that natural acidity that the grape has, that citrusy character. I mean, this, you can tell that it was grown in a super sunny climate, right? You get that, like, like daffodil, yellow flower, you know, you get that sunshine. You can taste it in the wine. So tell me why, why is Germany considered the undisputed king of Rieslings? So think about Germany, where it is just geographically, right? It's pretty far north. Mm-hmm. Because it's so far north, it's a generally cooler climate than places in France. You know, the one place in France where you find a lot of Riesling planted is Alsace, which is a region that used to belong to Germany. You know, it's the it's a part of part of the world where you know they they sometimes speak German there. You know, you go to northern Italy, there's a little bit of Riesling planted there as well. You find some other German varieties planted. It's really a grape that thrives in a cooler climate. It's also a very finicky grape. Um, it's very particular about where it wants to be grown, and it works best on certain soil types. And I think I've mentioned it a couple of times, but there's a soil type called slate, which I don't know if you've ever seen pieces of slate before, but like super shiny, thin kind of like flecks of rock. Um, and slate has this amazing ability to reflect light and absorb heat. So these grapes, you know, they're grown in climates that, you know, several decades ago, you might only have one or two good vintages a decade, right? Now with global warming, you get a little more heat, a little more consistency. But back in the day, you would have one or two years of amazing, amazing, perfect conditions. And 
in those years, like Riesling was magical. That's why you had these wines that could age forever and ever. You know, when grapes are grown in warmer climates, generally speaking, as a grape's ripeness increases, acidity drops. You know, generally that's just like the life of a grape. On a physiological level, as ripeness increases, acid decreases. Um, but you need acid in order to have a good wine in most cases. So in that, so with that in mind, and that brings me to my next question I had for you. Sorry, once again, I, this is very fascinating to me. Yeah. But in terms of duration on the vine, how long will a tip like a like an acidic um, still riesling that we're having right now? How long duration? from the time it's picked, cultivated, and restart the process. How long from the restart, if we hit reset at the very mm -hmm. beginning, we've cultivated, and now on to the next one. How long from start until next cultivation, typically, will it be on the vine? Like the life cycle of the a vine? The life cycle. Yeah, totally. So they will <clears throat> pick these grapes, gen it could be as early as August, you know? It could be... How many months, how many, how long... Does it allow the grape to grow? Is I guess about like asking. about like you know from the time that the, you start to see bud break to the time of right. harvest, that could be like six to seven months. Okay, that's what I was thinking yeah. it would be. Yeah, you know the the vines will go a little bit dormant during the winter, you know, um, and then you'll have bud break, and then you know flowering, you'll have all that good stuff, <clears throat> and then the grapes will slowly ripen, <clears throat> which is actually a great segue into the way Germans classify their wine. Because there are two ways that if you look at a German wine label, they will classify their wine. The first way, which I want to talk about based on your question, is the ripeness of the grapes. And the other way is regional or vineyard specificity. But let's talk about ripeness of grapes because that's super important, right? So, you know, let's see what we got. I want to show you on the bottle here. So... So we've got some bottles here. So the system that they use for gauging the ripeness of grape is called the Predicat system. So Predicat was a system that was created because historically these German vineyards struggled to produce grapes of physiological ripeness. We talked about how far these how far north these vineyards are, right? So sometimes they'd have to harvest the grapes when they weren't even ripe yet, but they just had to harvest them because it was so late in the year they had to do it, you know? In those situations, you had underripe grapes that they were picking. And in the years that the grapes did get fully ripe, they wanted to find a way to let people know, like, look, these grapes got to full physiological ripeness. They're going to make a great wine that's fuller in body and have more complex and dense flavors, you know? They wanted to find a way to let people know. So that's that Prodicat system. The first level is Cabinet. And that's referring to grapes that are fully ripe. And you'd see that on a label. You know, this Louis Guntram that we're drinking right now, it doesn't say it on there. Um, but if it did, it would say cabinet, right? And that would let a consumer know these grapes were picked when they were fully ripe, you know? And so, and so the traits of a fully ripe grape are going to, for, in this particular instance, will be what? It would be a wine that's maybe like a little more like dense, more complex, maybe have riper fruit characters. Mm -hmm. I want to separate like sweetness of the wine and ripeness of the fruit used to make the wine, right? Because you could have a wine that's made with overripe grapes, but be dry. If you see the word trocken on a label, T-R-O-C-K-E-N, trocken means dry. And it doesn't matter how ripe the grapes were. They could have been underripe grapes. They could have been overripe grapes. If you mm -hmm. see the word trocken on there, you know that the wine that you're drinking is not going to be sweet at all. 
You can also see the word halbtrocken, which means half dry. And that means the wine might have a little bit of like residual sugar to it. It might say classic too. So but... so just because a wine is fully, just because it's a cabinet, mm-hmm. right? Fully, fully ripe. It doesn't necessarily then mean that because, and you told me fully ripe, just to show you I'm paying attention, <laughs> fully ripe, right? It's a, a, so it diminishes in acidity, but it doesn't necessarily mean sweeter. Doesn't necessarily mean sweeter. You got to remember, like historically, when those terms were created, it was at a time when grapes struggled to get to full ripeness, and they wanted to find a way to let the consumer know, like these are grapes that are fully ripe. We were able to get these grapes to a point where, when we harvested them, they were physiologically like sugars were at a certain level, you know. And if we really wanted to get technical, they would like there's a range in terms of like the bricks or the sugar content of that grape and the grapes have to be of that sugar content to be labeled cabinet so historically it was a way of like making sure there was quality we're kind of if we're in a pyramid right now like the basic level is like landwein which is like wines of germany table wine right and you go up that pyramid and you get to the product system and that was their way of letting people know, like, they're assuring people that these are grapes of good quality. You don't have that in places like France or Spain because those places were warmer. They were further south. There's they an assumption anyway. There's right? an assumption that the grapes are going to get fully ripe. Right. You know? Whereas in Germany, because you're further north, because it's a cooler climate, they wanted to find a way to let people know, look, these grapes are getting fully ripe. So Cabinet lets people know grapes are ripe. The next level up from that is called spot lazy which is S-P-A with an umlaut, T-L-E-S-E. Spot lese literally means late harvest. And that lets a consumer know that that grape was picked later than normal harvest. The grape might be slightly overripe. Now you could have a wine that says spot lese trocken. And what that's saying is this wine was fermented fully dry. There's no sweetness to it, but you're going to get a super ripe character of fruit. You know, think about like a wine that you've had, like a Pinot Noir from France versus a Pinot Noir from the Russian River Valley. Mm-hmm. Both of those wines are probably dry, but one grape got riper than the other, right? When it got picked. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what they're trying to convey there with Spot Lazy. This grape was riper. It was even further along in its development when it got picked. So the Germans, the 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 Pratikot, mm-hmm. that system is really going to be that's why you talked about reading the labels. It's really mm-hmm. more informative. I mean, it's yeah, it's really there give, for the consumer. 100%. Yeah, it's really giving you an opportunity to really have a better understanding of the wine. Mm-hmm. So, so like Cabernet, Spot Lazy, both of those could be dry wines. Spot Lazy, though, unless it says otherwise, you're probably going to get a sweeter wine, you know. And then beyond Spot Lazy, there's a category called Aus Lazy, which means select harvest. And those are grapes that are hand-selected and sometimes have this thing called botrytis, which is this, you know, noble rot that grows on the vine. If you've ever had sauterne, kind of similar to that, you know, but a much riper, even riper grape. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond Oslese, then you have things like Baron Oslese and Trockenbaron Oslese. <laughs> I know it's a doozy, right? Trockenbaron Oslese and Baron Oslese. Those are grapes that are super duper ripe, which, you know, you go back you know, a generation, and those were like once a decade, twice a decade, you know, wines, where you were lucky enough that you your vines were able to produce grapes at that level of ripeness, you know? And those are, 
you're talking Baranos Lese and Trocken Baranos Lese. Those are dessert wines. Those are sweet, honeyed wines. And if you see those in the market, they're generally sold in half size bottles, 375 milliliter. They are much more honeyed, complex. They're like dessert wines. They're a dessert unto themselves. And they're generally pretty expensive too. All right, so this is probably a silly question, but when we talked about a more acidic, a more acidic Riesling and maybe not being the best pairing for something like a ceviche, but something mm-hmm. that's 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 more fatty mm-hmm. and something that is a, a little more bold and where the fat cuts through, why would you go? I've always been curious about this sweet wine with sweet dessert when you're doubling up on the concept of sweetness yeah so something that we always talk about as wine professionals like when we're pairing things the last thing you want to do is have the dessert be sweeter than the wine when the dessert is sweeter than the wine that you're drinking it makes the wine not taste good you taste the alcohol more makes the wine taste kind of sour you always want the beverage to be sweeter than whatever it is you're wow, eating really mm-hmm. which is why like normally like the best like Dessert pairings oftentimes are like fruits, you know, or fruit-based desserts with a dessert wine, or it's a cheese course. You know, it might be a more savory dessert. I'm trying to think of places in Houston that really excel at that, and think of a place like Nancy's Hustle and like the Parmesan cheesecake. I don't know if you ever. That's had that. exactly what I was thinking of when yeah. you talked about that. Yeah. But like, I think even on their menu, they would say like, "Have this with a glass of our dessert wine," because they know that of all of their desserts. That one tends to be the most savory in character, more than like the chocolate, you know, cake that they have or something like that. You know, you want to make sure that the wine has an opportunity to shine. You know, so that's kind of the idea. There. So if you're putting if you're putting together a, um, a wine program or a beverage program in a restaurant, and you mm-hmm. have your opportunity to to use a German wine and something that's sweeter, will you work directly with the pastry chef? In terms of understanding the, and maybe even suggesting, hey, we've got a great wine that I'd love to bring in from mm-hmm. Germany that's a little sweeter, but I think it would go amazing with a more savory dessert. Can we maybe think about adding a savory dessert? Is that something you would do? Yeah, I mean, I can think back to some of the most memorable meals that I've had. Like when I was in Spain, at uh, there's this restaurant in the Basque country called Muguritz, and it's always on that list that comes out every year of like mm-hmm. best restaurants in the world. And what's crazy is it's a restaurant nestled in the Basque country, which is in Spain, you know, so they have access to some of the best Spanish wine in the world, right? Um, And the Basque country is also pretty close to France, you know, part of the Basque country, it's an autonomous region is in France. But the wine that we got served more often than any other in that meal was Riesling. You know, we had two dry Rieslings that were served with our meal, and then there was a dessert Riesling, uh, Trockenbeer and Ocelese, that they served with the dessert course. And I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, it was a couple of different cheeses that they served with it. You know, so realistically speaking, like, was it like a dessert, like a s'mores pie or something like that? No, <laughs> but, you know, it was exactly what you want at the end of a meal. Sometimes you go to a nice restaurant and they give you that sorbet course kind of to reset your palate a little bit you know, before you get into the rest of the desserts. Mm-hmm. And that's sometimes what like a late harvest Riesling wine will do. You have an ice vine, you have a Baron Auslese, and you get that like hit of like ripe citrus. And then you get that like honeyed sweet character. And then the finish is all acid, you know? So your mouth is still salivating ready for that next bite. Nice. You know, I think of like the restaurants here in Houston, like 
I know that Uchi, we're, we're going back to sushi, but you know, I know for a fact that they've got a couple of different really great Rieslings on their menu right now. Um, and it's because they know how great the pairing is. So um, we were talking about there's two designations for German wine, right? The first one is on the ripeness of the grape, and the other one is on vineyard designation. And, you know, they created a system within an organization called the VDP. So VDP is this organization of about 196 different producers. It's kind of like the association of producers, and it's a way to let people know that the wine that they're having is something of assured quality. To be a member of the VDP, you have to agree to certain, you know, rules and regulations in the way in which you're going to make wine. Um, it's kind of like if you were to go to Champagne, there's the special club, you know, or in Burgundy, right? You have to agree that like something is Premier Cru or Grand Cru. And that's what they're able to do with these wines that are within the VDP. So like if you see a bottle in Germany, um, or if you're in the German wine aisle, and you see a bottle and there's a GG on the label, or it's embossed on the glass, that implies that that is a Grand Cru bottling, you know? And that's a great way to tell if something is of a certain quality level. You know, the GG stands for Grosgevex, which literally just translates to like Grand Cru. And those wines are always going to be dry and they're always going to be from the best vineyard sites. And those wines are always going to be from VDP producers. So VDP is a way of gauging quality. There are a lot of really amazing producers that aren't members of the VDP, that mm-hmm. aren't part of that association of growers. But here in the U.S., Wines are getting exported to the United States, right? Chances are if you're in a store and you see the VDP logo, which is an eagle, if you see an eagle and it says VDP right on like the top of the bottle or you see it on the back of the label, chances are you know that that wine is made to a certain quality level. And if you see that GG, you know you're getting something from the best vineyard site and you know it's a dry wine. (laughs) Can you tell me what some of the, um, like, the agreed upon standards. Do you have examples of what? what yeah, that would so be? you're not allowed to chapitalize. So chapitalizing is when you add sugar to the grape juice. You press the grapes and you add sugar so that you have essentially like a riper style of wine. And that's something that's used throughout all of Europe. You know, chapitalizing is something that, you know, a lot of producers will do it if they have underripe grapes. Going back to that idea of like cabinet spot laissé, if you have grapes that aren't quite cabinet level, right, and you want to up the quality of your juice, you might add sugar so that your fermentation has more to work with. Mm-hmm. That kind of makes sense. It's it a way be- to artificially create a higher level of sugar in the grapes without actually ripening those grapes to that but level. But that would the the getting back to the traditional and the precision of mm-hmm. the German wines. That seems like that would break the standards. Of Which wanting- is why, like, VDP says no chapitalizing. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. And there's other rules and regulations within the VDP, you know. Like, if you want to call your wine Grand Cru, if you want to put that GG on your label, mm-hmm. depending on what region of Germany you're in, they'll only let you do it if you're working with a certain variety. You know, and each winery is only allowed to make one GG per site. You know, you're allowed to make one good GG from this particular vineyard, you know. So they're very particular about that sort of thing, but um, it's just another way of like gauging that label. You're at a restaurant and you see a wine with a hard to pronounce name, and then it says GG after that, that's a way for you to know, okay, that's referring to the vineyard, that vineyard is a Grand Cru, and that wine is a dry wine. It's not gonna be sweet. 
regardless of what grape it is. You can have GG Pinot Noir, you can have GG Riesling, you can have GG, you know, Sylvaner, but all of those things are going to be dry, regardless of what they are. Because with GG, the idea is you're showcasing that vineyard. It's a Grand Cru vineyard. Why have sweetness to get in the way of whatever you're trying to taste? From and that naturally, site? because of you know, because of the region itself, you are mm-hmm. going to have typically you're going to have it's that's going to be a little more dry if it's GG and it's on and, and you didn't have that added sugar anyway. You know, exactly. that's not going to be part of the standard. It's kind of like the creme de la creme within that association of growers. So that's that's what we're looking for. If I if I want to show off to someone at home about they're used to French wines, they're used to California wines, they're, whatever the case may be, and I say, I want to hit you with a German wine. Mm-hmm. I, I want to go somewhere where I can find the Eagle, the GG. That's what I'm looking for then. Yeah, like I'm going to give you a good example. So at the wine bar that I used to run, Camerata, mm-hmm. I did an event with um, Morgan Stanley. Um, they had like their high wealth clients and they wanted to do a private tasting for them and teach them about like like secrets of the wine world like what do people that are in the know order when they go out so that they could kind of like be clued into those things and what we poured is we poured a gg for the group and we were like look this is a dry riesling and if you're out in a setting and you go to a nice restaurant and you see there's a gg riesling on the menu you know what you're getting is very high quality fruit that is from what's considered to be one of the best vineyards. And it's from a producer that joined an association that's based on quality. And you know the wine that you're getting is dry. And you can impress your group and you can impress the sommelier that's working by ordering that thing. You know, And that was kind of the conversation we were having with these high-wealth individuals. Is like, look, you want to find the secrets that are on the wine list. Us as wine professionals, we always put little Easter eggs in a menu. You know, We, f- we find things like hidden treasures and... Our goal is that we hope people order those things. And for me, GG Riesling is like one of the best things out there. In Germany, they know that GG Riesling is great, but very few people in the U.S. do. Thanks for telling me the secret. Oh, I'm letting you in, baby. Yeah, I just I just start it and I just put a little box Jeez. around it. Yeah, this is going in the pocket. Hell yeah, dog. Well, I know that was a lot to take in. That was a whole lot of information about a whole lot of different topics. Are you ready to try the next one? I am. I am. So we're going to try a different grape. So far, we've had Riesling, both still and sparkling. But now we're going to have a Pinot Blanc. So Pinot Blanc, you know, is related to Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir is the black Pinot. This is Pinot Blanc, the white Pinot. So this wine is coming from that region that you were talking about earlier, the Mosul. It's more, am I wrong? But it's more the petrol in that, there's something in that direction. I mean, it's not... The nose is not something I'm used to. It's kind of musky. Yes, it is. There's like a little bit of that like uh, white peach, but kind of like overripe white peach, kind of like bruised in character. It's also a little salty. I I always find it, so musky is a perfect term. And I just, I didn't trust my sense of what I was smelling. And I guess that's, that's part of, to get to where you want to be, you've got to trust your nose. You've got to... Not be afraid to say this is exactly what I'm experiencing because whatever you're experiencing, you're experiencing. That's yeah. what, that's what's on your nose. That's what's in your palate. Exactly. You know, and think about like what you would perfect for this. And think about like what you would want to pair this with compared to the last wine we had. You know, this one, in my left hand, right. This is the Louis Goutrum, um Riesling, but in my right hand, it's the Selbach Oster Pinot Blanc. You know, 
to me, Weisberg under Pinot Blanc, it's not as serious, you know, as the Riesling is. No, but it's still got plenty of acidity in it. Oh, it's it's super complex, Mm -hmm. but you were talking about like a social wine, something you could just have with friends. That would be more in that. This is perfect for that, you know? This wine, I feel like it's a little more challenging to find a perfect pairing for it because, you know, the Louis Goutram, there's, there's so much going on. Sweetness. There's just a hint. Yeah. It's, it's got the acidity, but there is a little bit of a hint of sweetness, and it's, a, it's, got, it's a little more playful, if you will. Yeah, for sure. So Pinot Blanc, related to Pinot Noir, and one of the grapes that was brought over with those Cistercian monks— back in the Middle Ages, brought from France to Germany. So I figured what we'd do now is we'd kind of talk about the major grapes of Germany now that we've had a chance to try two of them. You know, and the big thing to take away here is that like we go back to 1980 and 89% of all the wine made in Germany was white wine, only 11% red. Fast forward to now, we're at 66% white wine, 34% that blows me away. red wine. Crazy, right? Mm -hmm. And part of that, you know, is that global warming that we were talking about. You can get red grapes more ripe than you could have, you know, 30 years ago. Do you have an idea of what the difference is in Germany specifically to weather? In terms of like temperature wise? Yeah, how it's changed. And and, and because I typically hear two degrees difference a lot of times, what you hear. Is that, can that make that much of a difference in the region? It can. I mean, think about that on a daily basis, right? That's more sunshine, that's more heat each day. You know, um, and certainly certain parts of re, uh, certain parts of Germany, you know, have bigger fluctuations than other. There, we'll, we'll talk about it when we talk about wine regions. But like one of the northernmost regions in all of Germany, the R, which makes mostly Pinot Noir, it's much further north than like Mosul is. But Mosul specializes in white wine, and R specializes in red wine. You know, and it's further north. And it's further north. It's because of pockets of like warm air that can just travel through these valleys. So they have microclimates there as well. Exactly, one hundred percent. So obviously, the goat, the most important grape of Germany, is going to be Riesling. It represents twenty three percent of all production. As we've talked about, it's highly acidic. It's just naturally a very vivacious, floral, like high toned wine. There's a reason that it's so widely planted. There's a reason so many people know about it. It's just a grape that thrives in Germany in that cooler climate area. Um, The second most commonly planted grape in Germany is a grape called um, Müller-Turgau. So Müller-Turgau is this really cool grape that was actually created. It was a cross between two different varieties. You know, Riesling, it's a great grape. We've talked about how awesome it is, but it's really finicky. It's kind of like the Goldilocks, right? Like it it doesn't like it when the soil, you know, is too much one way or too much the other way. So what will happen to the grape if it's finicky? It it just doesn't get physiologically ripe enough, you know, or the vines just don't like produce grapes, you know, in that climate, you know. Um, So what they wanted to do was they wanted to create a grape that would produce higher yields that would, you know, the vines would produce more grapes and they wanted a grape that was just easier to grow that wouldn't have as much fuss and they wanted a grape that would yield fruit earlier. You know, we talked about how much Germans struggled historically to get grapes ripe. That's why they had Cabernet, Spot, Lazy, Lazy, those other categories. So they were like, what if we had a grape that tasted kind of like Riesling 
but ripened earlier. And that's why they created Muller-Turgau. So it's the crossing of Riesling and some other variety, and it doesn't have the complexity that Riesling does, but the yields are better, it's easier to grow, and it ripens earlier, so there weren't the same issues. So in the 19, like... I want to say like in the early 1900s, late 1800s, it became like the thing to plant. And that's when we saw like a decline in German wine production, you know, in terms of quality, at least. Because people were like, look, this thing is easier to grow. We can get more quantity out of it. Yeah, the wines aren't as complex, but you know what? It's easier to do than working with Riesling. So you found a lot of Muller-Turgau being planted. It's only in the past like 30 to 40 years that Riesling has reasserted itself as like, no, We'd rather make, you know, we'd rather work with this finicky grape than work with, you know, this other grape that's not quite as complex. Mm -hmm. Having said that, though, there are great Muller-Turgaus out there. I mean, there's still 12% of all vineyards planted are planted to Muller-Turgau. Has that number come down? It's come down significantly. And there definitely are producers that are making cool Muller-Turgau. You know, one that comes to mind, um, there's a producer in the southern part of Germany that's making an orange wine, Enderlei and Moll. Really? And, you know, obviously the grape isn't as aromatic on its own as Riesling is, but you give it a little bit of skin contact and you can make a really cool wine out of it. Hmm. You know, um, there's another producer named Fritz Muller, and he's making a frizzante, like a Prosecco-style wine. Because there, you get something that's light, fruity, zesty, and you get something that's sparkling, you know? So, it definitely has a place in Germany. It was created... To cre- it was created for, you know, quantity and for, you know, that sure. aspect of things. But now you're getting something else out of it. Mm-hmm. The other grapes that are really, really popular in Germany, about 6% of all production in Germany is a grape called Grauburgunder, or you might know it as Pinot Grigio or Pinot Gris. So what's super cool is that Germany makes more Pinot Gris or Pinot Grigio than any other country in the world outside of Germany, uh, outside of Italy. So wow, I would have never. I think about never how popular that. Pinot Grigio is. People love Pinot Grigio, right? And German Pinot Grigio. What's so cool about it is it's got a little more weight than what you find out of Pinot Grigio. So German Pinot Gris or Grauburgunder, uh, just because of the cooler climate and the way Germans handle the grape. You know, it's just got Germans like to make wine that has more concentration, right? Think about like stylistically. You might have the exact same kind of like player if we were to talk about sports right Right. that raw talent can be honed by different coaches in different ways one coach might be known for doing a certain thing right Mm -hmm. the germans are known for creating concentrated white wines that's interesting so in my world that would be more like fundamentals you want someone who is fundamentally sound and technique you know that, that technically he will do things the way he's supposed to to do them he's taught a certain way the fundamentals are there and it seems like the german and that gets back to the precision but it seems like the german winemaking if i'm drawing a parallel between sports is is that because of the more concentrated look this is the way we start with this is what we expect of you and this is what is expected of a wine these are really non-negotiable we there has to be a certain complexity there has to be a certain vibe to the german wine mm-hmm. um and and you don't want to lose that. You don't want which which the Moller Turgau. I would assume you started to lose. That's why the Germans went back because they lost a little bit of that soul yeah. that, that the Riesling provided them and that they were known for. Yeah, yeah. I think you know for 
we go back to that idea of purity of fruit. We go back to that idea of creating something that speaks to the land where it's from. And Riesling, Grauburgunder, Weissburgunder, these grapes do that for sure. Um, you know, the other grape that's really commonly used is Silvaner. And that's another grape variety that has like that like high acid character. Not quite as high acid as Riesling. Um, you typically find Silvaner in some of the more southern regions of Germany. Um, but it's just... A great, subtle white wine. Um, you ready to talk about red wine? Yeah, so this is what I'm really excited about. Yeah? Yeah, because I, I'd i read and then you you confirmed. I was blown away when I saw that 33% were reds. Yeah. And since when? When did that start? When did that trend start? Yeah, so I mean like they always made a small amount of red wine. You know, like in 1980, it was 11% of total production for the entire country. Now it's as high as 34%. But, you know, the Germans are like anyone else. They want to drink white wine. They want to drink red wine. They want a little bit of everything. Um, it was only once, I think they had more familiarity with how wine was made in other places. You know, as winemakers traveled to France or traveled to South Africa or traveled to New Zealand or traveled to California and saw the way other people were working with Pinot Noir that they got the opportunity to see how it was being done you know once again I mean it's very interesting on the nose it's not what I'm used to in Maybe what way is, I, I don't know for me it's less you know, it's less fruity, less floral. It, there's 100%. just more. It's it's more earthy. I don't know how to explain it other than I think earthy it's more earthy. Yeah. You get like that mushroomy character. Yeah. Like, so that's got to be. So is that is that standard? Is that what I should expect from most of the German reds? Yeah, I think in general there's a savoriness to those wines, and there's a spice, right? Like to me, like have you ever had like? Um, it makes me think of sumac. You know, or mm. like bitter greens like Endive or, you know, some of those other, you know, like greens like sorrel that, that you sometimes get. a little get. bit of, uh, a little bit of bitterness. Mustard yeah. greens, dandelion yeah. greens, like that right. element. And that's what I'm getting out of this, you know. So, you know, it's interesting because I, I firmly, I've got a son who, now to get into my family life, um, I have a son who has a clear, his palate craves the tang of mustard of lemon of mm -hmm. he's that's his that's his palate yeah. he's he's a baker he likes to cook he's 14 years old and he's really um he's really gotten into like he has a certain he has a certain palate and certain taste buds mm -hmm. and and i realize his are very similar to mine and there is something about uh, the last wine we were trying there was something when i put it on a certain spot of my tongue that really was appealing to me yeah. And there's something appealing about that bitterness, the little hint of bitterness yeah. right at the end mm -hmm. that I really, that keeps me coming back for more and more. And with the greens that you talked about, that's something that I really didn't discover until later in my life. And it's something yeah. that obviously my palate was craving and I really didn't know that's what I wanted. And that's the thing I love about wines and that I'm discovering just today with German wines is that there, there are things that for my particular palate that mm -hmm. I really enjoy that I, I just haven't discovered up to this point. And yeah. that's why everything has to be... A, if you're not discovering who you are and what you like, because everything you like is out there for you to mm -hmm. find, you just have to unlock it. And so yeah. many people stay stagnant 
and they don't find what you gotta they truly explore. love. You got to try something you different. You have to explore. Yeah, so this wine, what I love about all German Pinot Noir is that like savoriness. And I think that this producer, Mesmer, does a really, really great job at it. So the estate was founded in 1960 and is now run by Gregor Mesmer, who's the son of the founder. It's in a region called the Falz. So the Falz is southern Germany, kind of as far west as you can go. You're right on the border with France. You're separated from France by the Vosges mountain range. You have this mountain range that's covered with a forest. It's the Hart Hills. And it's this really tall forest with all these trees. And they provide shade to the vines at the end of the day. It's it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. So they're making a lot of Pinot Noir in that part of the faults. And then you're also finding Pinot Noir in nearby southern regions like Württemberg and Baden. So it's that southern area of Germany where you find the most Pinot Noir being made. Just because it's warmer down there for the most part. So as I'm drinking this, yeah, like what do you it think? It feels very straightforward. What you see on the front end, what you feel on the front end is what you get on the back end. This mm -hmm. is this is a very straightforward. This is for me, and once again, I'm you might see it completely different, but this feels like a very straightforward, this is what I am, this is what my flavor profiles mm -hmm. are. And it doesn't try to fool you at all on the back. Oh, that's that's interesting on the back end. I like the fact that I'm getting something that I know I'm getting the consistency of flavor from the, mm -hmm. from the early stages of the, of the tasting to the back end. And I think that's because, especially in Germany, you know, like the use of new oak is not very common. We think about like regions that use a lot of new oak, like Napa Valley or Bordeaux, uh -huh. um, maybe parts of Burgundy, right? But new oak is an additive, right? It's something that's being used oftentimes to add more flavor to the wine. But in the case of Pinot Noir even, like in Germany, they're like, no, we want the Pinot Noir wine to taste like the Pinot Noir grape. So how you know? is it so how is it aged? So a lot of these wines, so the German barrel that's used most often is something called a fooder. Um, and it's a larger barrel that's being used and generally it's a neutral barrel. They don't want to impart that flavor of oak. Um, and they're using those barrels to age the wine, or what's oftentimes used is stainless steel, because stainless steel is not gonna impart anything. So in the case of the Selbach Oster, that uses fooder, that wood that we were talking about. But uh, Gutrum, Louis Gutrum, the dry Riesling that we had, they predominantly use stainless steel. Mesmer, pretty sure uses stainless steel as well. So, there, so I love this, because this is what I believe in, and it's interesting because maybe it gets to the core of my, you know, my, my heritage, which is primarily German, mm -hmm. which is majority German. But there is an honesty to it. Um, from everything, the VDP, from everything you've told me, the German wine, and you correct me if I'm wrong here, but the German wine is about being true to form, true to function, uh, true to the precision and the standards that exist over two millennia yeah and it is about they they don't want you to have a, a, a dishonest product they want you to have an honest product and that's what I'm tasting in all the wines and and I, I guess what I've learned is the making of these wines there is an honesty to it where they say look the standards are what we've set forward and we're gonna stick by these standards and then the mm -hmm. wines I think the wines follow um, in terms of those same standards is they want they want it to be an honest experience and an honest wine 
I Does think, that make sense to you? I don't. I, no, that's I how think I it, feel it at least. No, for sure. They they. I think if you could fault the Germans for anything, it's that there's too much information. You know those people that are like so <laughs> effusive, and they give you like all this like technical information. There's nothing hidden. No, They're no, not no, no, trying no. to hide. Yeah, <laughs> there's nothing's getting slid under the table or anything like that. But I think that's the challenge so many people have with German wine is like maybe once they were served like a sweet Riesling, you know, right. which they do exist and they are delicious. But you know, if you want a dry wine and someone serves you a sweet wine, I can see why that wouldn't be appealing. But then you go into the grocery store or you're looking at a wine list, you see a bunch of words you don't know, you don't know what they mean by them. Like, look at this bottle of Pinot Noir, right? Let's use this one as an example. Nice. What they did that was nice was they translated Pinot Noir. You know, normally a German wine might say Spätburgunder, which is the German name for it. More and more producers are just putting Pinot Noir on the label. That's smart. But then you see the words Rotwein Trocken. And Trocken is dry. Trocken means dry. You know that now, but, like, if you didn't know what that meant, you'd be like, what the fuck are they talking about, right? Like... And Rotwein just means red wine. It means dry red wine, which is what, what, 90% of us ask for when we go into restaurants. Can you serve me a dry red wine, right? And that's literally all that says. But I think because there's this, like, desire to put, like, all the information out there for people, you know, they, you know, a lot of people struggle with these wines. So, again, this wine's coming from the faults. You know, the other wine that we looked at, you can see not a lot of Rieslings, you know, I'm holding up the bottle of Louis Goutram right now, mm-hmm. but you look at the back of the label and a lot of producers will have this little guide that shows you how sweet the wine might be. I mean, they really want to lay it out for you. They want to lay but it out for you. But that's the honesty of it all. Yeah. You know, they, they, there is truth. They want you to understand that the VDP is a level of uh, a level of excellence, a level of standards that are set forth. I mean, mm-hmm. th- and see, this is appealing to me. There are other people who may, and there's no right way, but there are other people who may say, I want the romanticism of and the unknown. I like the fact that I don't know everything. The mystique. The mystique, yeah. exactly. Yeah. For me, personally, mystique is fine at times, but there's, in my heart... I like to know that what you're telling me is true and what you're giving me is true. And there's something that you've taught me about the German wines that I, I think it, it crosses over. That's the culture. I mean, that's yeah. that's clearly the embodiment of the German winemaking at, at some level. And, and certainly production and certainly bottling now is they're saying, look, we're an open book and this is what we're this is what we're doing. You know, what I what I think Germany does better than almost anyone is conveying that. Like if you go to the I need more wine, red, I need more red, by the way. Red, more red. Yeah, Let's I, do it, baby. Yeah, because I'm not Let's used to this up. is my first time having a German red. There we go. Fill you up, brother. And it's thirty three percent production. That's incredible to me. Yeah, so the main red grapes of Germany, right? There's Spätburgunder, which is twelve percent of total production, third worldwide after, you know, France and the USA. You know, typically they're more light-bodied than what you find out of France and more light-bodied than what you find out of the USA. Probably more in common with Burgundy than what you find out of Russian River Valley. And normally not a lot of oak that's being used. A lot of high-tone, like, tart berry fruit. You know, the other red grapes, you've got varieties like Dornfelder, which is a crossed variety, much in the way, like, Muller-Turgau is. Um, 
And then you've got other varieties like Trollinger, which is you find in northern Italy where it's called Schiava. You have Lemberger, which is an Austrian variety where it's known as Blaufrankisch. You have Portugieser, which is another common variety. All of those represent less than, you know, 6% of total production. But it does show an international flavor. You yeah. talked about it earlier. Yeah, 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 you've got Italian varieties, Austrian varieties, French varieties, all being grown there, you know. So those are those really exciting things that I'm excited to see grow in the U.S. market. You know, we're still, after 30, 40 years, trying to tell Americans that not all Riesling is sweet. But maybe we can tell them, you know what, try a German Pinot Noir. You know, you're not fighting that same battle. So how do you do that? As someone who's sold wine to people, someone who's paired it with wine, I'm a consumer. I'm not on, yeah. I'm not on your side of the, uh, of the ledger. I'm, I'm on the other side. How do you sell an American consumer? You've sold me today. How do you sell an American consumer to try something that they may have pre-existing um, conceptions of what the wine is or maybe they just say I don't know anything about it I don't know if I want to try it yeah. how, how do you sell someone what do, what do you think yeah. is the, the what are the selling points for I think you? I think it's really easy to overwhelm people with too much information right. like you've been very patient today to listen to here listen oh, this to me is great like, though to me but like I've learned so much but think about like the average person in a restaurant right or the average person shopping the shelf well, at a store me free wine this is yeah. an easy sell I'm just yeah. gonna tell you but like, when even when I'm at a restaurant, like I want that person to sell me on the wine in about maybe 15, 20 seconds. And they don't, that, that person doesn't have the time to go into like the monastic traditions of the Middle Ages or the Holy Roman Empire or anything else. Like they've got, they've got, they've got fucking, that's you know, a long tw- pitch. 15, that's a long pitch. That's you, not they an got elevator 15, pitch. Yeah. yeah. Or a very tall building for that elevator, <laughs> right. right? So you know for me like get to the like nitty-gritty as quickly as possible right like this is a dry wine bone dry not sweet at all if i'm talking about riesling and oftentimes if you're talking about a riesling like when i worked at the wine bar i just wouldn't tell people like oh try this wine it's really good you wouldn't tell i wouldn't tell them where it's from or what grape it is i'd be like i love that concept because it doesn't allow people to come in with preconceived notions preconceived notion bias and defenses yeah it, they they are forced to reckon with their palate, nothing yeah. more. And sometimes those guests would be like, mm, "This this smells familiar, but I really like the way it tastes." And you're like, "Great, cool. This is a German Riesling. It's from the Faltz, or it's from Rheinhessen, or it's from Mosel, it's from the Mittelrhein." And they'd be like, "Oh, okay, cool. I didn't know they made wine like that there." And you're like, "Well, now you do, baby. Let's do this." Um, in terms of those other varieties. That's where I think there's a real great conversation to have. Because like you said, a lot of people want to find value. I mean, wine is kind of a black box for a lot of people, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of people feel like they get swindled when they're talking to the sommelier. That person's going to sell them something that's like not good. You know, I think over the past decade, there's been a lot of trust that's been built with that person in the restaurant. But I think that in general you can find some amazing values in Germany. I mean, to put in perspective real quick, all of these wines that we're serving today, you can buy online at wine.com for less than $20. No way. Yeah, all of them are super inexpensive, reasonably priced. what determines that price point? You know, it's a bunch of different things, but, you know, like we talked about, I mean, 
you know, Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris, like Weissburgunder and Grauburgunder, like Germany makes more of that than almost anyone else in the world, you know? Pinot Noir, they're the third most productive place outside of France and the USA. Like they do make a lot of wine. So you know? even the Louis is going to be under 20. Even the dry Riesling yeah. I had. That Louis Goutram that you had, you know, under $20, you know, wow, retail that's at a least. Right so, Yeah, I mean for the level of complexity that you're getting. Sure. Like Look, there's there's great wines from so many different countries, so many different regions. Um, do can you read a table and and determine and once again, I'm only speaking for German wines right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But is is there a, a, a is there anything you look for from a table if you're a som at a restaurant or or at mm-hmm. the wine bar, where you say, I think this person, this type of personality, is there a way that you can read their poker hand? If you can read yeah. who they are as a person, a personality, where you think I think they would appreciate what the German this German wine has to offer. So you know something that I think this younger generation brings to the table, right? Like I'm lucky enough that Germany has explored so many different types of wine. We talked earlier about experimentation versus tradition. You know, if I were selling German wine a decade ago, I would have a much more challenging time, you know, bringing something to the table for any type of palate. But what's really cool is now we've got producers in Germany that are in their 20s and 30s and 40s making really cool wine and I've also got importers, people that live in the U.S. that have a passion for German wine that are bringing in really, really cool things. You know, they're people that are passionate and they're finding, you know, the inventive Pinot Noir that's being made in this, you know, region of Baden. You know, they're working with the sparkling wine coming out of the faults. You know, they're working with these producers and they're bringing that to the U.S. so that I have a full array of different things. So that table that I'm going to that, you know— Let's say that I'm working at a restaurant and that guest is like, I'm having, you know, the porchetta tonight, you know, okay, cool. You're having the porchetta tonight. Are you in the mood for red or white wine? I'm in the mood for red wine. Great. I have a delicious unoaked red wine that's going to have like a really nice herbal character. It's a varietal spice, you know, it'll pair perfectly with that porchetta and there's a natural acidity in the grapes that'll cut right through the fat. Cool. Awesome. You know, this mesmer perfect for that the fact that it's a liter sized bottle is just a bonus baby you did a hell of a job though of selling exactly why you got right to the point of why it's a perfect pairing and i think that's one of the keys for me is when i'm listening to a psalm if a psalm is going to sell me on a wine from a region that i'm not used to trying or Mm -hmm. or a a type of wine or maybe a country i'm not, not used to a region a country um you need to tell me why you need to tell me why. And I think that's been one of the interesting things listening to you today is the explanation of, but it's not just the explanation, the tasting of, wow, I, I can completely see this. Like there is, this is actually easy for me to understand. I've had wines where the pairings to me didn't always make sense. Everything that you said from a pairing standpoint with each of these wines, it seems like they're pretty straightforward. They make a lot of sense. Yeah, you know, and I think the other thing is that normally people can hear your passion. Like if that wine professional is really excited oh, about something and yeah. they know what they're talking about, like they're not just talking out of their it gets ass, me but if excited. like, yeah, yeah. you're going to be excited about it too. Yeah, I think that's the key to anything. In my world, it's funny, I remember the third year, second year I was on um, sports radio, it was 1999. I started in 1997. 
And we had someone on talking about horse racing. And this person told me, this listener said, look, I don't typically care about a horse racing, but your guest was so passionate that I really got yeah. into it. Like, I listened, I yeah. wanted to be part of it. And I think that's, I think that's important when someone on a wait staff or a chef or a psalm is, you can sense when they're just going through the motions yeah. or when they're really excited about what they're talking about and they really want you to experience what they've experienced. And for me, if you get that excited about something, mm-hmm. I, I want to see what, put me on your coattails. I want to mm-hmm. ride along for the experience. So like of everything that you heard today, like what was like your biggest takeaway? You know, I think for me, um, I, I like the fact that Okay, so I'm mine is more of a macro view than a micro view. Yeah. The fact that the standards and getting to the VSP or the VDP, I should say, um, getting to how far back it goes, the standards that are set forth, um, unoaked, no added sugar. There really is a standard. I think for me, it's that Germany says there is a standard for our wine production, and it goes back to their history, and I think their pride in what they do. And for me, what I took away, and I don't know if this is right or wrong, is that they say this is what we stand for, and we're not going to relent on, we don't really care what anyone else is doing right now, this is what we do. And that really dates back to their history. I think it goes all the way back to the history of how it started. And even when you grow and you change and you modify, there is still at its core a fundamental way of making wine. And so even though you have 33% you know, reds being grown now as opposed to, what was it, 11? Like 11, 40 yeah, years ago. There yeah. still is a standard that's set. And so mm-hmm. I know, this is what I learned. I know that with German wines, I've got a standard that I can expect. And, and what you see is what you, what you get to, to really boil it down. Yeah, that level of transparency. Absolutely. And I personally, I like that. Love it. Cool. Well, any other questions you got for me? Uh, yeah. You know, my last question for you would be, um, as it pertains to, let's take you, when did you start your, when did you start in the wine business? I started in 2013. Okay. So you told me that when you first start, let's say it was 10 years ago or yeah. seven years ago or whatever, that you would have a harder time selling German wines. And once again, this is just pertaining to German wines. Mm-hmm. Um, have you grown in terms of Assam or has Germany diversified and grown? Is it you hmm. or is it Germany? So I think that's a really interesting question. I think that it's a little bit of both and I realize that's a cop-out answer. But totally. Um, <laughs> oh baby um i'm no, forcing so, you to i'm forcing you to really be introspective here yeah, yeah yeah so when i started in the wine industry right you know what appealed to me about wine was the anthropological side of things i what i loved about wine is was how interdisciplinary it was right what do you it, mean by that so interdisciplinary in the sense that like 
I could learn a little bit of geography. I could learn a little bit of history. I could learn a little bit about like the fucking monks that were coming over <laughs> from France into Germany. Right. I could learn about soil types. I could learn a little bit about chemistry and like pH balancing, you know, and like the sugar content of the grapes. Like I could learn so many different sides of it. And that was really appealing to me. You know, I've, I've always kind of like considered the position that I'm in as a bit of a storyteller, right? And it's recognizing what's going to resonate with this consumer. What's, what is this guest going to really like about this product? And it's different for every person. And within Germany, you know, there are some amazing stories. I mean, look at this bottle of Selbach Oster, right? It says on the label, you have the family crest and it says 1600 at the top, right? Oh, that's awesome. So, Johannes Selbach and his daughter Hannah and his son Sebastian, his wife Barbara, they work as a family at the winery, but the Selbach family like goes back generations. They used to be coopers. They would make the barrels, you know? Um, and there's so much history there in all of Germany. Does right? it upset you? I'm sorry to jump in. No, no, but no, 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 no. Does it upset there. you that people can't know the history like you do? Because it's not the... their job to know the history. No, though, right? it's not their job, but and maybe it's because I'm getting older, but I feel like, you know, there there is something to. There's a. It's not a sadness, but. There are some there there are people who have poured. There are German wine. Once again, we're staying with German wines, but there are German winemakers, for example, today's theme, that have put their lives and it's multiple generations mm -hmm. into this discipline, into this craft, into this love. Yeah. Right. And if you could experience it like they experienced it, you know, I just know that they would, it, it would be something that, that would feel amazing to them. And for you to put the time in to, to, to educate me on everything that you've learned about German wines, I mean, I would think as a Psalm, you want people to experience it the way that you've experienced. You can't. Unless you really come back over and over and over again well, as a consumer. Well, what about – I'm going to flip that. Okay. Like you work in sports, right? And right. in sports, so much is based on tradition, right? Yeah, You know, sure. you look at a coach and well, how did that person become a coach? Well, it's because they were a player and they were a player for this particular coach. And they learned their coaching style by that person, you know, when they were a player, right? And – you talk about like a team, right? Like what is a team? A team is just like this like mythology that you create. And it's this weird synergy of like corporate capitalism, right? And selling the most tickets possible and creating this like sense of loyalty people have to this abstract concept of a team, which changes with different players that get traded from one spot to yeah, another. Yeah, but the team is right? bigger than the individual. So I think that's what's interesting is that no matter what you, one thing that I've learned and it's so interesting because I always I love to find parallels between um, entertainment, sports, food, music. Well, they're all passion based products, and they're also experiential products. Like it's all about the yes. experience, right? Yeah. And selling yeah. the story, right? Right. Or telling the story, I guess. But the German story, from what you've told me so far today, it's truly about. Look, it's not. It's not that it's romanticized. It's 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 more historical. And this is the history. It's laid out. There are grapes that are difficult to cultivate because of the steepness, yeah. <laughs> you know, that are, that's there. And there are because of what we have today, which is global warming. It's 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 here. It's real. It's scientific. So now we're they're having to progress. Germany is and and, mm -hmm. and grow grapes in a different way and grow different types of grapes. 
But I think it's I think it's really interesting that that you have you know you talked about teams. So from a sports concept, the team is always bigger than the individual. But if I'm taking it the parallel to wine, look, the team means there is there's something that's universal about about so whoever runs the team and in this particular case it'd be an owner or a general manager in sports but for german wine it's history it, it dates it, it predates mm-hmm. it predates anything and everything it goes so far back that this is inside this bubble but every individual player they are their individual selves but they all come together to live inside this bubble of the team it's the same thing with wines and it's the same thing with german wines and that's beautiful that you brought that up to me because what I'm finding is that I can bring it all together now. The German experience for me that mm-hmm. I've experienced today is that there is a standard that's been set forth and there's different varietals and there's different, but they all, at some point, the one common thread is that they're honest. Once again, this is my experience. They're mm-hmm. honest, they're true, and they tell you who they are. They're very transparent. And I really love that about the German wines. And it's something I didn't know. Um, I texted my wife. And <laughs> I didn't mean to be rude, but I said, no, no, no. I want to go to Germany. I just texted, <laughs> I want to go to Germany. Add it to the list, she said. And then I also, by the way, what's the Su- last thing? Sushi. Yeah, so I also said sushi. She has no idea what that means tonight. But what she doesn't know is that in about 40 minutes, we'll have sushi. Hell yeah, dog. Well, and probably great. a German wine, if I'm being honest. Bro, like, yeah. Let's, cork, it, let's cork one of those up. Let's screw the cap on, and one of these is coming home with me, and I'm having sushi. You oh, you yeah. sold me. There you we didn't go. even I try, and you sold me. Well, Lance, thank you so much. I appreciate it. This is great. Thank you. I really appreciate you letting me be part of this. This has been great. Thank you. That was awesome. That was so much fun. And that's a wrap. That is the end of our first episode. Again, I want to remind everyone that all of the wine that we bought was available on wine.com. So easily accessible. If you're in Houston, you can go to Houston Wine Merchant. You could even go to Specs and find a lot of these things. German wine is accessible. It's reasonably priced. Go ahead and seek out a bottle. To learn more about German wine, you can go to Wines of Germany's website or follow them on Instagram at GermanWineUSA. And you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you stream your audio content. Follow on Instagram at By the Glass Podcast so that you never miss an episode. We'll see you soon.